Thanks, Dennis. Uh, he definitely did embarrass me. Um, I know that as I'm coming up here, it seems like usually people tell me that whenever I speak that I, I don't look nervous at all, I'm calm and collected, but just so you guys know, I'm like everyone else. I'm terrified of public speaking, and I might just be a little bit better at keeping my legs from shaking. I don't know, but uh, this is my church family here, and so it's, it's a pleasure to be able to be with you guys. Uh, it's an honor to have the opportunity to, to open God's word. And it's just what we want to do this morning. We want to, to open God's word, uh, to see what he might have for us, and to see who God is in that. And as Dennis mentioned, we, we are in the middle of going through a series on Acts, and if this isn't your first time, then you've definitely heard before that we're told that Acts is basically about a group of ordinary people who are equipped with an irresistible message, doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's just exciting. Uh, I'm so grateful that we are taking the time to just walk through Acts and get to see just how the early church developed and how God was at work in the world back then and thus to see that God is still at work in the world today. Just as a heads up, I'd like to let you guys know that the passage today is really quite long. And so I was really tempted uh, in preparing for this passage to want to, to summarize parts of it and just kind of give you an overview of certain parts and then move on to different parts. But I'm not going to do that. And I wanted to tell you guys why. And that's because we believe that this book is God's word. That it's breathed out by God, all of it. And it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuke or for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good word. And so, anything that I could tell you today is just secondary to what's written in here. And so what that means is that we're going to be reading a lot. I hope you guys are okay with that, but it's good. It's good. So if you do have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you can start turning with me to Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have some Bibles available for you in the center aisle. Uh, if you want one of those, feel free to go grab one, raise your hand if that's too awkward. Uh, feel free just to listen along, uh, but know that those Bibles are there, and they're available for you not just today, but to take home with you as well. That'd be our gift to you. We desire that everyone would have access to God's Word. And if you are looking along in our Bibles, the passage is on page 921. So today we find ourselves in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas last week had just been sent out from the church at Antioch. They were sent out both by the church, but then specifically they're also sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so they headed off on their missionary journey, and they initially went to the island of Cyprus. And just like Dennis last week, I'm going to mispronounce some names today. Um, and they preached the gospel at the synagogue in Salamis. And so that's where we pick up the story now, as they are beginning to leave Cyprus out of the port at Paphos. So if you guys want to follow along, we're going to begin reading at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. 
And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This is a a lot of different names about places and where people are going. And so if any of you are like me, just hearing it is not helpful at all, but I want to see it. And so I wonder if we can get the first slide up and just try to give us a little bit of a picture of of where we're at and what's going on. So the church in Antioch is where we started. So that's where Paul and Barnabas were sent out. And so they head down here to the island of Cyprus and initially preach the gospel in the synagogue at Salamis. From Paphos, they head over to Perga, at which point then they head up to Antioch again. And if you heard that, probably sound a little confusing because they started in Antioch and now they're back in Antioch again. these are actually two different places. They're actually named after the same guy. The same guy. It was a general, actually, uh, under Alexander the Great, who named both of these cities after his son. So same name, different places. Seeing it is probably a little bit more helpful to understand that. And so we also heard that at Perga, John, who had been with them for the beginning of the journey, has gone back all the way down to Jerusalem. And we're not told why, but this comes up later, so maybe hide that away in your, your brain. Just remember, oh yeah, John left for some reason. When it, as we're thinking about Paul and Barnabas traveling, I think it's probably hard for us to really get a picture of like, what they were really doing. Uh, but I wonder if we can go to the, the next one. So this journey from, from Perga to Antioch. It looks like a short distance here, but let's just think about what was involved there. So I took the liberty of Google Mapsing this um, just to figure out exactly what it might be like. And... Thankfully, Google Maps was able to tell me what it would take to walk from the approximate locations. And so it would be about 211 kilometers, which is going to be a little over 120 miles that Paul and Barnabas are walking. It's actually like over mountains. And Google estimates that that's going to take them on the shortest route, 45 hours of straight walking, up to 46, 51, probably depending upon traffic. Um, <laughs> Right, this is, this is a hard journey. It takes a lot for them to get to these places. Um, and actually, it's interesting because even now, the places where we want to be getting the gospel to now that have never heard, which is what these places were back then, are even harder to get to. The places now that have no access to the gospel are the most remote places in the world. They're the hardest places to go. They're the ones that governments don't let you in. And so even though this was extremely difficult journey, for Paul and Barnabas then, the journey that our missionaries have today to reach the unreached is actually even more difficult than it was back then. But so they made this journey and they got to, to Antioch in Pisidia. And we can get rid of the slide now. And at that point, they waited for the, the Sabbath and then went to the synagogue. And this is what we actually saw at Salamis as well. Paul and Barnabas, their, their primary goal is to reach Gentiles, but they realized that probably the best way to do that is to be to go to the synagogue because that's where they're going to find Gentiles who are already trying to follow God. And so they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and the reading from the prophets occur and afterwards they ask Paul to get up and speak. How cool is that? (laughs) Like Paul has been sent out by the Holy Spirit but he's not just sent out and left to go do the work on his own, but, but the Holy Spirit is going with him. God is going with him and creating opportunities as he goes. I know that, at least in my own life, I've found that quite often 
I feel like God was calling me to something that I have absolutely no clue how in the world like I'm going to be able to do what he's asking me to do. And I think that the encouragement here is just that we see that, that God doesn't tell us to go do something and leave us to do it on our own, but he calls us to something and goes with us and creates opportunities for us to do that which he has called us to. And so when we pick up at verse 16, we're going to hear Paul's sermon. And you notice that Paul didn't have to be asked twice to preach. He's excited for this. Now, I want us to actually read through all of Paul's sermon in, in one chunk because I want us to really focus on, on what Paul is saying here. But kind of to, to help us, I guess, handle such a large chunk, I want us to think ahead of time of where Paul is going. And so we can kind of break Paul's message up into four different points. He begins with point one. That tells us the history of Israel. And he's going to be explaining, basically, Israel's history starting in Egypt all the way up until the reign of David as king. From there, he starts telling about the life of Jesus because Jesus is the offspring of David and talks about his life, his death, and his resurrection. From there, he talks about prophecy that points to Christ. And really, it's a bunch of Old Testament passages that explain who the Christ is. And finally, he finishes with a call to believe. He's presented the gospel, and now he asks people to reckon with who Christ is and to choose whether or not they're going to follow him for salvation. So if you guys will read with me, let's start at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as is written in the second psalm. You are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. I was a mouthful, I need a drink of water, but part of me just wants to, to end the sermon there, and I think that we would be fine. We've heard the gospel clearly proclaimed, we've seen who God is, and really, we've even been asked to, to respond to that. But I want to make sure that we don't miss some of the key points that Paul is making in, in how he lays out this message, so I'm going to take a little bit more time, I'm sorry but direct us to what I think is really important. The first thing that I want us to notice is how Paul describes this history of Israel. Now, if you and I were going to to tell the history of Israel, it would probably be Israel did this, and Israel did that. And then they went here, and then they went there. But if we notice, Paul doesn't do that. And we should pay attention to that, because what Paul does, when he tells the story of Israel, he says, and God did this, and God did that, and then God did this, and then God did that. And you start thinking, wait, I thought this was the history of Israel. But what we realize is that God is the main actor in the story of Israel. Counting 16 verses, I see that there's actually 16 different actions that are attributed to God. And this just isn't a normal way to tell a story. Like, Paul is making a theological point here. I mean, notice what he says. He, he attributes all these things to God. He says that in verse 17, it's God who chose Israel, chose, like, chose them, set them apart. It's, it's God who made Israel great when they were in Egypt. It's God who took them out of Egypt and freed them from slavery. In verse 18, it's God who put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, it's, it's God who destroyed seven nations. Now, sure, Israel swung the sword, but it's God who actually was the one that destroyed those nations. It's God who gave Israel the promised land. In verse 20, God gave Israel judges. 21, God gave them kings. 22, God removed kings. Notice this, nations and kingdoms are brought in and out of power by God. Verse, 20 thing, verse 23, God brought Israel a savior. God fulfilled his promises. And in verse 30, it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the history of Israel, but the story is about God. Paul wants to draw our attention to who God is. Friends, we have a great, great God 
Paul wants us to know him, to think about him, to realize that there is no aspect of our lives, no aspect of Israel's history, no aspect of of the storyline in Acts, like no part of all of history that is, is absent from his control, from his workings, and from his purposes. There's no opportunity to kind of try to partition life for the world and say there's, there's secular and there's sacred. There's things that are about God and things that aren't. No, it's, it's ultimately all about God. We can't miss that in the way that Paul emphasizes how he tells the story. The second thing that we see in the way that Paul tells the history of Israel is that the entire history of Israel is all pointing to one thing. It's pointing to this one grand fulfillment, and that is the coming of Christ, the coming of the Savior of Israel, and ultimately the Savior of the entire world. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he, he says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. It's at the coming of Christ that the fullness of everything that God has been doing, all that he's been doing to work throughout history, has been pointing to this one moment when Jesus would come, incarnate, born in human form, ultimately to die for us, to be our penalty for us to take the penalty that we deserved. And let's take a look at what Paul tells us about Jesus. In verse 23, he tells us that he is the fulfillment of the promise to bring Israel a savior. I want to take an aside here and just step out of the argument for a second and just think about how awesome this is. Like, God fulfills his promises. Like, in the Old Testament, it was promised God would bring about a savior for Israel, like from his own people, of the offspring of David. And God did it. Like this promise that God had made ages ago, God fulfilled in Jesus. And one thing that we need to remember is that God keeps his promises. Like God is trustworthy, like he's dependable, he doesn't lie. Like when he gives his word, it's true. And so one thing that's really exciting about that is that as we open up God's word and dig into it and study it and look for what God says, like we can know that the promises that God gives us there are promises that he's going to keep. So when he promises that he's going to work all things together for good, we know that that's true. And even if that's hard, and it means he's conforming us more to the image of his son, it's a promise that he's keeping. When he promises that he's going to give us his joy and that our joy might be full, even though that seems like, how is that possible in the midst of life that is just overwhelming and destroying me in the midst of heartache and brokenness. But yet God promises us that he will give us his joy and he will make it full. Like we can trust that God will keep his promises because he's always kept his promises in the past. Something to hold on to. So God fulfilled his promised Israel in bringing Jesus. In verse 28, we hear that he was executed In verse 29, Paul tells us that Jesus was buried. And then in verse 30, we're told that God raised Jesus from the dead. Just point out that one more time too. Like God literally wrote, like raised Jesus from the dead. Like he was literally dead and then he was literally resurrected. 
Like Paul wants us to understand that. 38, we're told that through Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. And he's speaking in the synagogues. This is to the Jewish people to understand just the weight of their sin. They've seen the sacrificial system. They understand that the only way that sin can be paid for is through the, like, the sacrifice, like the killing of an animal. Like it requires death. It requires the spilling of blood. And so they understand that now in Jesus, there is that forgiveness of sins. And in 39, we're told that everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Like, only in Jesus is there ultimately freedom. Only in Christ is there finally that, that true freedom, that fullness of freedom. And so this word here, actually, that if you guys are reading in the ESV, it's translated freed, but it's a word that, that really means more like justified. And justified would be a word used in the Old Testament as a judicial term. So you can think about this if, if two people have an argument and they're coming up before the judge, bring a complaint there, then the judge is going to uh, give forth a verdict and declare like one party innocent or justified and the other party guilty. And so it's the idea that in Christ, for those of us who believe in Christ, like Despite the fact that we know that we are sinners, we are declared justified. We are declared not guilty. We are innocent before him. Our passage continues today. I told you it was long. We're not even done with the passage yet. In verse 42, when we get to see the response that the people have to Paul's message, follow along at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Initially, the response that we see to Paul's sermon seems to be only positive. It's, we see that both the, the Jews and the Gentiles are they're asking more questions. They're excited to hear what Paul's talking about. They even ask Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath to share more. It's only at this second opportunity to share more that then we see that there's two very polarizing responses. We see that the Jews are actually jealous that the whole city seems to be there. 
all wanting to hear what Paul has to say. And they start actually like inciting rebellion against him. Whereas the Gentiles, their response is still only positive. We see three clear things in their response. The first thing we see is that they are filled with joy. Secondly, we see that they are glorifying the word of the Lord. And third, we see that they're sharing the word. And so let me break those down and point out to you exactly how we're seeing that. The Gentiles here are, are responding to this idea that, that God has been working throughout all of history, that he hasn't been distant and standoff. It's not like he just created the world and then left it to be, but he's been actively working through history, like bringing about his purpose of salvation for not just Israel, but salvation for all peoples. That's Gentiles included, right? And so they're responding to this idea that now they're being told when previously they were always outside of that covenant that God had with his people Israel. They're now being told they're brought into that, that the gospel is for them, that God has always actually been seeking to have his name be known among all nations, among all peoples, and his salvation is the only way of salvation for all peoples. And so they're responding to this idea that now they can be made right with God. They can have a relationship with him because of what God has done in sending Jesus to both live, die, and rise from the dead on their behalf. And so because of that, they are, first, they're filled with joy. What I want us to notice here is that this is a joy that's not situationally dependent. It's not dependent upon the circumstances that they're in. In fact, we're, we're told that the Jews actually stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, which more than likely means that there's persecution against anyone who believes. And it's in the midst of this persecution that they are still filled with joy. It's important to realize that that Paul talks about joy and not happiness. Happiness is one of those things that that really usually is describing like a circumstance. It's, It's how you're relating to the situation that you're in, whereas Joy, in fact, we're told, is a fruit of the Spirit, and so it's not dependent upon the situation that we're in, but it's dependent upon the relationship we have with Christ, and something that God gives to us is a fruit of that. It doesn't mean that, that joy is something that always is. It doesn't mean that you're bubbly all the time. It doesn't mean that you're always happy, right? You don't always have to be going around with a smile on your face, but there's a joy that surpasses the circumstances. I wonder if this can help us understand that. Uh, a couple months ago, I got to go mountain biking with some friends, and it was going to be all downhill mountain biking, and so we had a couple friends that were going to take a van and meet us down the hill at one point. But sadly, we didn't communicate very well, and the point where we were supposed to meet, we ended up riding by about 3,000 feet of elevation down and a number of miles beyond and just happened to be an area with literally no cell phone reception on a day like today around 90 degree heat. And we'd only packed enough water for the downhill and so now we're realizing we have no idea where they're at, we have no way to get a hold of them and we have no more water. 
not the best circumstance. Thankfully, honestly, we're, we're on a road that had enough traffic that it wasn't like our lives were in danger. It was really just our pride was in danger. We'd have to ask for help and admit that we had just not planned accordingly. And so I remember there being one point where we had ridden back up the mountain a number of miles, thirsty, like we'd found a camp that we thought they'd probably have a landline. And so the guys that I were with went to that camp to try to find a phone to call someone, hopefully to get a hold of someone. And I was sitting by the road under this shade, one piece of shade I could find from the sign for the camp, sitting in the dirt, empty water bottle, thirsty, tired. But interestingly enough, honestly, filled with joy. And this isn't the way that my life always is, but during that week especially, I'd been reading through a book that just reminded me to be focused on the gospel and just like the understanding that like I am made right with God because of what Christ has done, not because of anything that I could do. It was one of those times where thankfully I was actually walking by the Spirit and thinking about just like the truths of, of what God has done in my life and how like being right with God just changes everything else. And so even though like here I am, I'm sitting on the ground in the dirt, thirsty, hot, sweaty, embarrassed, and just thinking about I am right with Christ. Is able to give me a joy that is not situationally dependent, but based upon what Christ has done for me. And in my situation, that's small in comparison to the different suffering that, that I know that so many of you are probably experiencing right now. But still, God promises that he will give us his joy no matter our circumstance. And it's because of what Christ has done for us, not because of the situations that we're in or because of who we are. Secondly, we see them that they are glorifying the word of the Lord. And honestly, there's no more appropriate response than this. Like when we see how God has been working throughout all history to bring about salvation for us, how can we not, when we realize how great God is, how big he is, not praise him for that? And thirdly, we see them sharing the word. And this one's cool, and you have to pay a little bit of attention, but you notice that it says that the word spread throughout the whole area. But Paul and Barnabas were kicked out because of persecution. And so the only implication of that is that these Gentiles that had just heard and responded to the word are now instantly sharing it. And that also just needs to be our response as well. That's the way that we would respond to understanding what God has done for us. Earlier, Emily asked you to tear off your connection cards. And so if you could, I'd ask you to to bring those out right now. In this room right now, we, we have two groups of people. We have the first group, those who haven't chosen to believe in Christ. And the second group, we have those that have. And so for those of you that are in the first group, I want you to, to listen again to Paul's warning in verse 40. I want you to take a look at that with me. Paul has just clearly shared what Christ has done and the opportunity that Christ gives each and every one of us to respond to his salvation. And Paul says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. 
Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. I want to be careful. Paul's words here sound really harsh. But what he's saying is that, like some of you, some of us will hear the truth about God. We'll hear that, that he died and he rose again and that the only way we can be made right with God is through trusting in his sacrifice. And we're going to scoff. We're going to ridicule that idea. We're simply not willing to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead or we're going to have some other objection to it that says, no, that's ridiculous. But Paul's point is that the result of that is perishing. And so for any of you that are in that situation right now, I just ask that, that you would be willing to, to just respond by being honest with what the questions are and what the, the reason is that you are not willing to, to respond and to trust Christ. Like maybe it is that the idea that Jesus actually rose from the dead just seems not possible. I know that we would love to be able to talk to you about that. And so if you are willing, would you write that on the card? Be willing to have us have a conversation about that at some point? For some of you, that's been the point so up to the, today maybe that you've never, you've always thought it sounds ridiculous, it doesn't make sense, but today maybe God has gotten a hold of you and he's, and finally the idea that you can actually be made right with God, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf is something that all of a sudden fills you with joy. And if that's the case, we would love to know about it and we'd love to talk to you more about that as well. For the rest of you, you've already responded to, to what Christ has done and you have chosen to rely upon him and not your own works to make yourself right with God. And for you, I'd ask you to, to be thinking through the way that we see the Gentiles respond in this passage and be asking, like, how is God leading you to respond? Is God leading you right now and just giving you an overflowing of that fruit of the Spirit joy at realizing just how great the work of salvation is? If that's the case, I'd encourage you, write it down, share it with someone. Like share that right now you're experiencing the joy of knowing Christ. If God is just overwhelming you with the opportunity just to, to worship him for what he has done, do that. Or if God is overwhelming you with the need that you have to, to share this truth and this gospel with someone who, who you know but that doesn't know God, that doesn't trust him, I would encourage you to also be willing to, to write down that name so that we could be praying with you and partnering with you as you seek to have opportunities to share Christ with those people. But we can't hear God's message and not respond. We can't realize how great God is that he would be the primary actor in all of history working about to bring about the salvation of you and of me through his son and not respond. How great is our God? You guys pray with me as the band comes up. Father, you are a great God. You are greater than we could ever imagine, Lord, and we are so unworthy. Father, I'm so grateful that you have not chosen to create this world and then remain distant. You've chosen to be actively working in it to bring about your salvation to, 
to bring the opportunity for us to respond and to know you and be brought into relationship with you through the death of your son. I pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.